Beloved, we open our Bibles again to Deuteronomy chapter 10, and today we're going to look at verses 14 and 15. We're going to look at some of the trees for the forest. Uh, the last two weeks we've had large texts um, and lengthy sermons. I thank you for your, your patience and good listening. Appreciate it. Uh, today we're going to hone in on a couple of verses. I had mentioned it would be nice to, to, to look a little more closely at a few, um, and we're going to do that now. So remember the context of last week. I will not review it <laughs> in great detail, but remember that. Uh, and we're going to look at verses 14 and 15 of, of chapter 10. Uh, I think I will remind you that where we were starting at verse 12 through all of chapter 11 was the completion, the conclusion of Moses' sermon on the first commandment. Uh, we're going to soon start his sermon on his, his explanation and application of the second commandment with chapter 12. But today uh, and possibly next week, we're going we're gonna to look at a few specifics from what we looked at last week in the broader context. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. Hear now the word of the Lord. Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens is the Lord's thy God, the earth also with all that therein is. Only the Lord had a delight in thy fathers to love them. And he chose their seed after them, even you above all people as it is this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no more stiff necked. That's we're going to look a little bit at verse 16, but we're actually focusing on verses 14 and 15. And uh, one thing I think I'll say here is I think these are good verses to consider and take a look at uh, related to uh, our position on denying the doctrine of common grace as it's commonly understood, deferring to the language of common operations of the spirit, general providence with our standards to explain things the way that term is intended to be used but has gone beyond it. I think you can see that <clears throat> here as well because it, it is sovereign election. God chooses and loves his church. Not the whole world, but his church. And that's something to emphasize to, to show us how blessed we are. And that's what we're going to look at today. Uh, last week, again, in the morning sermon, we looked at chapter 10, verse 12, all the way through the end of chapter 11. Moses finished his sermon on the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Uh, as I mentioned, we, I'd like to look at a few of the texts in particular and hone in on them uh, for some marvelous things. And uh, not that it isn't all marvelous, but some special things. So we did last week in the evening, uh, we looked at the phrase, he is thy praise in verse 21. Uh, today, we're going to come closer to these verses, verses 14 and 15, about God's sovereign electing love. So in Reformed churches, there are times where uh, it's appropriate to revisit the doctrine of election. And we only, I mean, frankly, as we go through the Pentateuch, we have come across it so many times. I'm going to be careful not to go back and show you all the times in Genesis alone. But the whole context is the idea of God choosing a particular people uh, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then with Moses as the nation developing it, God's election, his sovereign election. But we don't want to miss that that, that choosing, unconditional election is love. We don't want to miss that. And therefore, what should be our emphasis and focus on the doctrine? Of all that God completely owns, he specially chooses his church alone to love. 
I gave you the, as the main idea of these verses in its context. Of all that God completely owns, he specially chooses his church alone to love. Uh, we have been looking quite a bit at the T in Tulip the last few weeks. God doesn't choose us. We don't get the promised land because of our might, our power. And we certainly don't get it because of any of our, un- any of our righteousness. There is none. That was greatly emphasized. So the T in Tulip, uh, uh, as we know, the acronym with Calvinism, uh, totally depraved, was impressed upon us. The church is just as totally depraved as the world. It's God's complete grace. But that sets up the U that we're focusing on today in Tulip, unconditional. Unconditional election, unconditional election, grace, unconditional love given to his church. That's what we touch on today. And beloved, may we now be touched by it today. God chose and loves to love you. Speaking to his visible church, he speaks specifically to his invisible church pray the two are the same here. But this is the message for you today from the text as he speaks to his visible church in this context. God chose and loves to love you. God chose you. He didn't choose everybody. He chose you. He chose you out of love and he loves to love you. Imagine a king who rules a vast empire, can have anybody he wants, right? Can have any wife he wants. You can think of maybe of the story of Esther, right? And anybody for his wife, but he chooses a peasant girl to marry him and to give her all that is his. Simply because he wills to make her his. You might, you might hark it of Ezekiel 16, right? God chooses his church And we should respond and say, Jesus, you could have chosen anybody. You have everyone. You, uh, me, you chose me. You could have chosen, you could have anybody you want. But he only wants you. He only wants his church. He says, yes, I want you. I've chosen you. This is what Moses is telling the church today to appreciate the vastness of all that God owns anyway. And yet he purchases and redeems you in Christ with a, with a special propriety that is only about you. Uh, This is what Moses is saying. Look at verse 14. Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens is the Lord's thy God, the earth also with all that therein is. You can see also ahead at verse 17, uh, kind of a connection there. The Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, a great God. Uh, I might bring us back to these verses another time for what continues. But he's the God of gods. He's the Lord of lords. Remember, this is said of Christ in Revelation. There isn't any other God. It's a superlative way of saying he's the only God and he has everything. He doesn't share with false gods. And he doesn't want us trying to worship false gods through idols, which is what we'll get to next in Deuteronomy 12. Though idols have even been referenced earlier. So God is saying, Moses is saying, God is God of gods and he owns everything in heaven. The heaven of heavens, another superlative. That's kind of a unique phrase. The heaven of heavens. Go as high as you want. You might think of Paul in the New Testament saying, I went to the third heaven, right? And, um, you know, there's this marvelous idea of the expanse of his created universe. It's all his. He made it all, 
right? He owns it all. He made it all. He can do whatever he wants with anything. Uh, we see in uh, this, this idea that God already owns everything. God already owns everyone. He doesn't have to enter into any kind of special thing other than his sovereign will. And he certainly doesn't have to do with us. He can do it with, he, he owns everybody. He can do whatever he wants with anybody. But Psalm 24 points this out as well, verses 1 and 2. Psalm 24. We're familiar with this. We sing it often. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. Certainly he owns it all in the heavens of heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in there is. Because he made it all, right? That's what's said in the fourth commandment in Exodus 20. The reason to keep it given is God made it all and he rested and he gave it as the example and hallowed it. But it said he made the earth, the heavens, all that in there is rested the seventh day. He made it all. He owns it all. As you sang last week, Psalm 115, verse 16, the heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's. But the earth hath he given to the children of men. Yet, beloved, he hasn't given himself to all of them. And that's the idea of what Moses is saying. And yet, all that being the case, the Lord has the heaven, the heaven of heavens, the earth, the sea, everything that's in them is. And yet, and yet, verse 15, only the Lord had a delight in thy fathers to love them. And he chose their seed after them. By the way, that's you and I. It's the people at the time we're thinking of. But beyond that, uh, even you above all people, as it is this day, he sovereignly loves only, chooses only his church, which is why Jesus saves only them. He comes to save his people from their sins. So the emphasis Moses is giving is God could have had anybody. He already owns everything and everybody, but he chooses you. He condescends and in Christ chooses you. He chose the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and through them and his covenant promise to them, all generations of their seed after them. Again, this is the doctrine of election. It isn't new. Let's look back at two other sections um, as, as milestones and points that are really explicitly saying what's really implicit in everything. But look at me. Look with me at chapter four, verse 37. This doctrine of election is spoken of all through the scriptures and all through Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 4, verse 37. And because he loved thy fathers. Notice again, love. He doesn't love everybody. He loved thy fathers, therefore he chose their seed after them and brought thee out in his sight with his mighty power out of Egypt. Why did he bring them out? The people he's speaking directly to at the time, because he chose their forefathers centuries before and promised them he would be choosing them out of their seed. He isn't doing this with all the nations. He's taking people now from all the nations of the world in Christ, but it's still choosing out of all those nations to make that one nation under God that will be in heaven under Christ. Look with me now also at chapter 7. This came up in chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. Now, again, uh, 
it's in the context of don't don't get arrogant about yourselves and think there's any reason God chose you about you. Not your might and power, not your righteousness. Quite the contrary. He really made that point big time, right? He but but what we want to focus on in verses seven and eight is the reason he's saying that, or the context is this the Lord did not set his love, notice, he set his love. This is a sovereign, electing, particular love he only has for the people he's elected that he's loved from all eternity. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor notice, choose you because you were more in number than any people for ye were the fewest of all people. Have that in view again with our text today of all the people of the earth and you were the fewest, but he chooses you. Verse eight, but because the Lord notice again, loved you. And because he would keep the oath which he had sworn to unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Notice again this idea of sovereign choice, God's sovereign choice that is not related to looking ahead, knowing what might happen, but determining what will because it's been predestinated. We'll look at other scriptures with that. Notice the emphasis on God's love and choosing in spite of us. So certainly it would be in spite of whether we respond in faith and choose to love and serve him. That's only because he's chosen us and enables us to do so. Has nothing to do with us, nothing to do with our response in faith. That's all a gift of God regenerating us. It's all simply because he chose you and he loves you. Deal with that, beloved. You had to deal with some tough stuff the other days. But what do you have to deal with today? He chose you. And he loves you. Deal with that and embrace it as he would have you embrace him as he embraces you. Why? Because he wants to. What are you going to do about that? He wants to. He loves you. He chooses you and not everybody else. Wow. We're supposed to appreciate what's being told to us. Notice he loved to love them. Back in our text today, chapter 10, verse 15, the word delight could be translated love. Uh, it's, it's okay to translate later delight, but as I've looked at it in the Hebrew, the lexicon translates it as love. So it's saying he loved to love you. And I, I think that's helpful to hear it that way. He loves to love you. He delights to love you. Isn't it lovely, though, to render it delight? He delights in loving you. Don't you need to be reminded of that, beloved? And is it because of you? No. Because of him and who he is and whom he has made you in Christ and his love for you in Christ. He delights to love you because you're his. Because he owns you. He's redeemed you. He's purchased you with the blood of Christ. He delights to love you. Again, this is the doctrine of sovereign election. God's election. He elects. He chooses those whom he will save out of his eternal love from out of this world. He chooses some. He doesn't choose others. He loves to love the ones he chooses. He chooses them because he loves them. And this is the reason his love cannot be lost. Beloved, remember how important this doctrine is for your assurance of salvation. I, I was watching, I think, last week a video by Dr. R.C. Sproul, and he was pointing that out in a video. One of the essential things to have assurance, and I think we've been hearing that in our, in our videos recently, too, by Dr. DeYoung here in Sabbath class. One of the main reason to have, reasons to have assurance is the doctrine of election. I mean, the Holy Spirit, Romans 8, speaks to us and confirms that we are his children. 
But what encourages us and gives us assurance is to remember it isn't based on us. Because if it was, we could lose it. It's based on him. It can't be lost. You cannot lose your salvation because you had nothing to do with it in the first place. It's all of God, from him, through him, to him, be glory in all things. It's not based on a person. It's not based on people. But God chose out of his loving choice. It's based on his choice. An important text I'll read for you that I think relates most closely to the context is Exodus 19, 5 to 6. Moses says, now, therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then shall then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people for all the earth is mine and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. God is saying when he first drew them out and he's establishing their relationship at Sinai, you are going to be my holy people, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, peculiar, standing out as different from the world. I'm choosing you out of them. Psalm 47, verse 4, you just sang, and the whole context talks about how the, the Lord owns everything. He's king over everything, and yet he chooses to be your saving king through election. Psalm 47, verse 4. He shall choose our inheritance for us. Notice again, inheritance, the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He shall choose our inheritance for us. The excellency of Jacob, whom he loved. Notice the word choose and the word loved related to Israel, which is the church. Jacob, the church, say law indeed. First Kings eight twenty seven. Solomon is praying. He's dedicating the temple as David told him to do. And he's praying, Lord, please be with us. And there's a lot that could be quoted there. But hear this first Kings eight verse 27. He says to God, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house that I have builded. But then, of course, God does manifest himself. He chooses to fill the temple with his glory as he did the tabernacle. So Christ, the king and creator of the universe, the cosmos, yet came to earth to be his church's Emmanuel, God with us. God's not with everyone. He's with his church through Christ alone. Beloved, I'm now going to ask you to walk with me through a number of scriptures uh, on this sermon, focusing on God's sovereign, loving election. Because, as you know, the broader church really argues against this today. We're not really doing this to enter into arguing, but we want to remember these important scriptures. So I'm going to ask you to turn with me. I'll come back to this text. Please keep it marked. I want you to see this in the New Testament first out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus. We're going to look at several parts of John, the Gospel of John. Would you open to John chapter 6 to begin with me, please? I'm going to try to mostly let the scriptures speak for themselves. I'm going to try not to add too much today. I think they say enough uh, and in different ways of looking at this doctrine of sovereign election. But what we need to see, it is surely here. Uh, again, John chapter 6, verse 37. 
Jesus says, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Let me at least say this, and I like to read the second part, you know, usually in the opening of worship. It's true that anyone that comes to Christ, he will not cast out. But how is it that anyone truly comes to Christ? The first part, because the Father has given that person to come to Christ. And so he does by the Spirit of Christ. All that God has chosen will come to him. He says elsewhere, I won't lose any the Lord has given me. Uh, Look ahead to verse 70 of John chapter 6. Jesus answered them, have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? So notice that one of them is clearly not chosen eternally, but he chooses his twelve. He doesn't, people don't just decide to choose themselves. He says, I've chosen you. More on that will be something Christ says. Look ahead to chapter 13 with me. Notice he's saying, I've chosen. He, the Lord Jesus, has chosen who will be, and thus who will not be. John chapter 13, verse 18. I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. So he's actually identifying. I'm not actually speaking of everyone. I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen. And then he's identifying Judas hasn't truly been chosen in terms of a true apostle. I know whom I have chosen. Therefore, he says to those apostles, follow me. He doesn't go say that to everyone. The Spirit only uses the, the uh, outward call of the gospel, specifically, specially, privately, in the hearts of his people that are chosen to respond because they've been loved and chosen. I know whom I have chosen. Now, look with me to chapter 15, verse 16. Ye have not chosen me, John 15, 16. Jesus says, ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And that emphasis on the first part with what we're studying today. You didn't choose me, I chose you. That's pretty much the last big sections of Deuteronomy, right? Uh, A lot of other things to, to demonstrate and prove that and humble them. But you didn't choose me, I chose you, Jesus says. That is the language, unmistakably, of sovereign election. The ideas of Calvinism, the you and tulip, unconditional election. You didn't have anything to do with it. I chose you, that's why you responded and chose me. Okay, Uh, look with me now to verse 19 of chapter 15. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Why does the world hate you? Because Jesus chose you. Why did Jesus chose you? Because he loves you. He doesn't love and choose everyone. He loves and chooses you out of the world. Okay, now look ahead uh, to, uh, to uh, chapter 17, verse 2. And this one is quite striking. Uh, 
Let me go ahead and read verse 1 to lead into verse 2. Chapter 17 of John. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son, that thy son also may glorify thee. Verse 2. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Who receives eternal life? The ones that the Father has given to the Son, Jesus, save his people from their sins to save. And so he's praying only for them. Look with me at verse 6. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now look with me at verse 9. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. Notice that special ownership. Surely God owns everything. But Jesus in his mediatorial prayer, John 17 is a lovely chapter to go and see how Jesus prays for his church. He says, I don't pray for the world. Notice that. I don't pray for the world. You don't love the whole world. You love your people from all places in the world, but you love only your church. So I don't even pray for the world. I pray only. Notice that. I pray only for your people that you have given me because you own them. You see that? Okay, now let's look at verse 20 together. John 17, verse 20. Neither pray I for these alone... But for them also, which shall believe on me through their word. Notice, he's still only praying for his peculiar people. But notice, he's praying for you. He's praying for you. Jesus is praying for you. Because you are part of that chosen seed. Those who believe are the sons of Abraham. He's looking ahead. Still, to his covenant love, choice, and plan with Father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He has prayed for you. Jesus has prayed for you, just like he prayed for Peter, that Satan won't get you. Why? Because he's chosen you. Why? Because he loves you. He was sent for you. It was not an accident. He didn't bump into you and then said, oh, I guess, why don't you join the ride? He specifically came for you, grabbed you, threw you in the car, and breathed life into you. And there you find yourself alive in Christ. Turn now with me ahead to Romans chapter 9. This is an important chapter uh, on election, which is why in one booklet at a nearby museum, although I took about a year and a half to ask them, please take this out. It's not necessary or relevant. But they were teaching that Calvinism is Satanism, satanic. It's probably still there. But one thing I brought to their attention is you don't even deal with Romans chapter 9. They did a horrible job with the exegesis of Ephesians chapter 2. I checked it with my Greek professor, but they don't even mention Romans chapter 9. Beloved, people do that when they know it will destroy them and their answer against Calvinism. You don't need Romans 9 to do it. Romans 9 is speaking to all these other texts. But Romans 9 is particularly there. We're going to look at it. I want you to remember this along where we're going to go in Ephesians 2. So remember Gospel of John especially. Romans chapter 9. We'll only look at some of it together. But I want to read with you verses 11 through 16. And again, we're looking at God's sovereign uh, 
election, his, his sovereign choice of his particular people, not for anything in them. He makes them respond to him by faith, not because they respond. And the only reason they do respond is he chose them to do so and therefore enabled it to happen by the Holy Spirit applying the redemption purchased in Christ for them. Romans 9, 11 to 16. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street, which is called straight. Oh, excuse me, I'm in the Gospel of Acts. I didn't quite make it to Romans. Sorry, I'm trying not to preach these extra texts. And I, I did a little bit, and then I forgot to get all the way to Romans 12. My apologies. Romans chapter, uh, not Romans 12, Romans 9, excuse me. Romans 9, verses 11 to 16. For the children being not yet born. He's speaking of uh, Isaac. Uh, the chosen one for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand not of works, but of him that calleth. And by the way, the idea of evangelical obedience, this idea of responding that is ended up being made a work. It is only that we respond because of God's calling. Verse 12, it was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And yes, the scriptures teach double predestination, which most reformed teachers will say and not deny, which is why we don't understand why we get such a headache when we just simply stand for the right language in our standards about common operations of the spirit related to general and specific providence. And we're careful not to use the phrase common grace because it has this idea of some kind of love for all. God clearly loves his church only. That's, he saves whom he loves. And you see that here. Jacob have I loved. That's what you sang in Psalm 47, right? Jacob he loves. Jacob he chooses, representing figuratively the phrase collectively of one, the church, his people, his elect. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. You can go to Malachi chapter 1, he's quoting. But that's referring back to Genesis. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. He shows mercy to whom he will. And in the whole chapter, he says, out of the same lump of clay, I make some to be vessels for my glory by being vessels of judgment. I make others out of the same lump of clay to be vessels of mercy for my glory. And I can do that because I'm the potter and the clay's mine. I can do whatever I want. But here's the thing to hear. When he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Remember the context there. And I think God is emphasizing I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Hear that for you, beloved. I choose you. I will have mercy on you. Why? Because I will. Because it's my will. It's my choice. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Not because of them, because I choose to. Who are you to tell me not to? Not just so much of who I don't choose and choose rather not to for other purposes of my glory, but those I choose for mercy. Don't argue with me about it. Just be thankful and be humble and don't doubt my mercy. I choose to have mercy on you in Christ. Have it. I will give it to you. You can't stop me. Hallelujah for that. 
Well, I'd like to deal with the whole chapter, but let's move on. Uh, if I would say go to the conclusion of chapter 11 of Romans for anyone who would still dare to argue with Paul here. What I do want to point out, though, that booklet that called Calvinism satanic and left out Romans 9, what you need to notice, all the arguments of the Arminians was all their arguments. And all those arguments Paul deals with in Romans 9 very directly. Who are you to talk back to God? Who are you to tell the potter what he can do or not do? You know, um, so I'd like to give time there, but we won't. Ephesians chapter one. I want to ask you to turn with Ephesians. So John, many parts of the gospel of John, Romans chapter nine. Remember that one. That's a really important one where Paul is specifically talking about this. And uh, then Ephesians uh, chapter one. So right after Galatians, right before Philippians. And uh, we're going to look at a little bit of two, but particularly remember Ephesians chapter one, the doctrine of sovereign election, predestination. Uh, anyone who wants to argue a free will. Now, remember, our standards do have a chapter on free will, doesn't deny it, but does recognize we only freely choose Satan and evil unless God awakens us and causes us. According to Psalm 110, verse three, the day of Jesus Christ, the priest after the order of Melchizedek, a willing people you make in this day. It's only if, if we're willing to choose him, we only freely will to do so because we've been saved from our depraved nature that would only will not to. We would only choose against Christ, okay? But uh, you don't really see that word free will anywhere. That's emphasized so much by the Arminians. What you do see is the words election and predestination everywhere and chosen. So see that especially in Ephesians 1. Mark this for the doctrine of election. Uh, I'm going to read for you Ephesians 1, 4 to 6. According as he hath chosen us in him, that is Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Now look ahead with me to verse 11. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Notice purpose chosen. There's no idea if he looks ahead. Oh, I see they're going to believe in me. So therefore they're elect. That doesn't that doesn't that makes nonsense of the word elect and predestinated and chosen. Notice his purpose in it is why it happens. Okay, now look ahead to chapter 2 with me, and I want to read verses 1 to 7. And actually, I'm going to read through verse 10. I often quote uh, through verse 10, uh, 8 to 10, uh, but I think I want to include that because of this idea of God's predestinating works, not only saving us in the work of Christ, but he, even the works we do are for his glory. He already planned it, okay? He ordained us for it. Here now, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, and notice, can a dead man do anything? A dead man doesn't believe anything. It can't. It's dead. He or she is dead. Has to be enlivened in Christ. That is being born again. The Greek literally born from above. The Holy Spirit has to regenerate us or we just stay dead. 
Okay? We don't choose him unless he enables us to. And why, does, why do some believe and some don't? It has to do on his sovereign election. Now, we don't pretend to know who they are, but God knows. And that's what God teaches us. Okay? Ephesians 2, let's go 1 to 10. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But, verse 4, unlike those others, God did something different to us. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love, wherewith he loved us. He's writing to the church. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Hear this Verse. I'll give this to you. Second Thessalonians two thirteen to fourteen. Second Thessalonians two thirteen to fourteen. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation. Through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you could go back to Romans 8, uh, 28 to 30 about those whom he calls. He's predestinated, predestinated. He glorifies, you know, um, the string of salvation there. But, you know, remembering Exodus 19, 5 to 6 that I brought up earlier, Peter refers to that in the New Testament to the church. 1 Peter 2, verses 5 and 9. Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Ye are a chosen generation. A royal priesthood and holy nation, a peculiar people that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so what should your response, beloved, be? Well, I'll tell you. Let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 10. What should your response be to all of this? First of all, verse 16 that follows 14 and 15, the first part. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and no more be stiff-necked. 
circumcised. Let your heart be cut open. Let, let yourself be soft and bleeding for the Lord. But you can go back to verse 12 as well. With all that was said before, it's not your righteousness. You should be burning in hell. But because of the mediation of Jesus Christ, typified by Moses, and because of God's sovereign choice and election and his promises to the patriarchs and his covenant, and now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee? What should your response be? But to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul. Look to chapter 11, verse 1. Therefore thou shalt love the Lord thy God and keep his charge and his statutes and his judgments and his commandments all the way. Look ahead to verse 13. And it shall come to pass, if ye shall hearken diligently unto my commandments, which I command you this day to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So what are you to do? What should be your response to God's loving to love you, sovereign election and choice of you out of this world when he doesn't have to do that and he already owns you and everybody anyways? But he enters into a special relationship with you for eternity through Christ and the covenant of grace, the blood of the everlasting covenant. Your response should be that your hearts are circumcised and fully serve and love the Lord, that your heart bleeds for Christ because of his blood shed for you that has put you in this place. Why? Because he chose you as he's always planned. But also the main sub-theme of your heart and love. You see that often? Love the Lord back. Choose to love him back with everything in you. He gave his, all of himself for you and his son. That is, go back to the beginning of this sermon by Moses on the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before you. And it starts with the great Shema. Hear, O Israel, chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength. You see, all of this doctrine of God's sovereign, particular, loving election is not to fight with those who deny it. But to cause you to humbly and gratefully love God back with all that is in you. 1 John 4, 10 and 11 and verse 19. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. We love him because he first loved us. Hear these verses. As if God is kneeling down to pick you up and embrace you, and remind you that he kneeled down and picked you up and embraced you because he chose you to do so. He loves to love you. He chooses you. He chooses to love you. Hear him say these verses to you in that regard from our text today. Isaiah 66, 1-2. Thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. 
Where is the house that you build unto me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things have mine had made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembleth at my word. Hear him say this to you in the idea of our text today. Hear him be kneeling down and embracing you and saying to you, Jeremiah 31, verse 3. The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Are your hearts not drawn to love and praise of your loving, sovereign Savior? Be drawn by these words by Thomas Goodwin in his article or his writings, The Greatness of God's Love to His Elect. Ephesians 2, 4 to 6 is his text, which we looked at today. The greatness of God's love to his elect. He's going to quote our text today. Now, I want to ask you to listen. I have a, a fairly lengthy quote, but I promise you it's a tiny piece of what he wrote. And even what the source is today is from a much larger section of things that came before. But I, I think this will drive home our text today, and, and I pray will bless you greatly. Thomas Goodwin the great, one of the Westminster Divines, the greatness of God's love to his elect on Ephesians 2, 4 to 5. Love is a desire to communicate good unto us. When mercy cometh out of love and not simply out of a virtue of mercy, if a father be of a merciful disposition, he will pity anyone out of virtue of mercy in him, but he will pity his son out of love. Our salvation doth not only depend upon mercy, but upon love. And not only upon the love of his nature, but upon an act of love. A love set upon us with his will and heart. An act of love hath determined this. Mercy engaged this mercy. Love is it which directs mercy to the persons. Love singles out the persons, and so they become vessels of mercy. He doth not say that God doth love us as he that began to love us when he first called us, or loveth us now he hath called us, but God that hath loved us. It is a love continued all the while from everlasting, even till the time of one's calling. He hath not only put forth an act or purpose of love at random, indefinitely, that he would love some of us or that he would love mankind, but as determinatively. As it was not merely the natural disposition of love and mercy in God that was the cause of our salvation, but an act of his will put forth. So it is not an indefinite act that he would save some, but it is us 
He resolved upon the persons whom he would save. He resolved upon them distinctly and nakedly. Love them distinctly by name and nakedly, that is, love their persons without the consideration of any qualification whatsoever. He goes on to say, my brethren, election is an act of love. And then he refers to our verses today. In Deuteronomy 10, 14, Deuteronomy 10, 15, how doth he express it? Behold, saith he, the heaven and the heaven of heavens is the Lord's, the earth also with all that therein is. He had choice enough. Only, saith he, the Lord had a delight in thy fathers to love them, and he chose their seed after them. He chose to love them. Mark it. He expresseth his choice and sets it out by those sweet words, love. Yea, and a delight to love them, a love unto their persons and a delight in that love. So you shall find that love and choice go together. Now notice he just expounded upon our text today in his commentary in Ephesians 2. I share two more thoughts. Thomas Goodwin. My brethren, all that I say of this is but this, that if God will fall in love and is pleased and delighted to set his love on creatures, how great must that love be? And whomsoever's lot it falls to, they shall have enough of it. God that is infinite hath an infinite love in his heart to bestow. And whoever it be that his will is pleased to cast that love upon, of whom it will be said, he hath loved us. It must be a great, yea, an infinite love. And lastly this. Now, do but think with yourselves that the very first thought of love that God hid towards you, the very first glance of love he took up, should be so much as that all sorts of ways that his wisdom can invent, and that an eternity of time, too, should be little enough to express and retail that love which thus in the lump he took up. He's alluding to Romans 9 there. Finally, he says, my brethren, this must certainly be a great love. Dearly beloved, choose to love, to love God through Christ with all that is in you and alone. Because in Christ, God chose and loves to love you. That is the message for you, Christians. That is the message for you, church, today. Deuteronomy 10. 14 and 15, behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens is the Lord's thy God, the earth also with all that therein is, 
only the Lord had a delight in thy fathers to love them, and he chose their seed after them, even you above all people, as it is this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, because God chose and loves to love you. Again, that's the message for you to take and hold on to. God chose and loves to love you. And the next time you're really doubting that, and sometimes for very good reason, in terms of looking at yourselves, you remember this. God chose me, and he loves to love me. He will have mercy on you because he will. He will have compassion on you because he will. He loves you because he does. He chooses you because he loves you. God chose and loves to love you. Let us respond in love, in prayer. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for first loving us. Let us love you back more and more wholeheartedly with all that is in us. How could we not? Enable us, Holy Spirit, with the fruit of love, first for our God, with everything in us. Thank you, Lord. You could have had anyone. You could have chosen anyone. You already have everyone, and you chose us, your church. Let us indeed be a holy nation, a peculiar people, kings, uh, showing forth your righteous holiness. And may you call out your elect from within this Paradise Hills and San Diego and around the world. May you call them out as you use your elect who you've already brought in to be a light to them and salt to them. Glorify yourself and we do bow to and acknowledge your sovereign power and your sovereign choice and election. And we rejoice that it is unconditional sovereign grace. And we pray indeed that you help us to hold on to this and be blessed in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved, we will now partake of the Lord's Supper together. Would you turn with me, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. First Corinthians chapter 10. Let me begin with verse 14 because it's where we're going next. The, the very close connection of not serving false gods related to no idols. And uh, notice verse 14. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, judge ye what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless... Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Now turn with me to chapter 11. Verse 28, let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. 
As you partake of this supper, Jesus is saying, remember him, remember his love for you. Remember he is Jesus, saved you from your sins because you were chosen to be saved by him. So the spirit applies to you, regenerating you, making you born from above, born again, made alive to believe in Christ and be saved. And he reminds you what he has done is finished. You will be with him in paradise. He reminds you, don't doubt his mercy. Don't challenge his mercy. Submit to it and be thankful and love him back. And so we express our love to him as we keep this command. I do want to explain to you that uh, we did order communion cups. They were supposed to be here. They are not here. Uh, I ran to a part of the city. I usually try to get them locally on Monday. They're out of them every time I go there. I don't know why. I called other stores locally. They're out of them. And I, I didn't get them at one store. They might have been. They were closed Monday. I hope, well, if I order it Monday, they'll be here. But they, alas, are not. So uh, thank you for your flexibility as we use our kitchen's Dixie cups to have the Lord's supper together in terms of the dispersion of the wine. Uh, let us pray. Lord in heaven, we do thank you that you chose us before the foundation of the world. You love us with an everlasting love. That means there's no beginning, let alone no, let alone no end to it. We thank you that you first loved us and so you chose us and you saved us and enabled us to respond in believing on you. you. We didn't choose you. You chose us. What can we say but thank you. Thank you. There's nothing in us to justify that other than your perfect secret will. And we do thank you. And we pray now, Lord, as we partake, that we would be so blessed by your sovereign mercy, that you will to have mercy and compassion on us, that you love us for your own name's sake, for your own covenant's sake, for your own mercy's sake. Use these means of grace to bless us in your love and to rejuvenate and freshen our love for you. And let us express that to you and to your people and even to our neighbor as ourself. Give a witness of your love and call out your elect. We thank you, Lord. We, we take this bread and this cup and we set it apart from a common to a holy particular use. As you remind us, you have taken us out of the world in it, but not of it, to a holy particular kingdom of priests, a holy nation. You have made us holy and call, us, call on us, therefore, to live holy life for you. Help us to keep setting ourselves out of the world and dedicating ourselves to holy sacramental devotion and dedication and how we serve you all the week as you refresh us on this, the Lord's day. Bless this bread and wine that we set apart from a common to a holy use as we eat and drink of Christ, feed our faith, nourish our souls, bubble up your life-giving waters in his Holy Spirit. Affirm to us your saving work out of your sovereign election and assure us of our salvation and let us rejoice anew in thy salvation as you would renew a right spirit within us. Bless us now as we partake of Christ, as you feed us with yourself, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name and all your people said, Amen. I now invite the elders to assist me in serving you the body and blood of your Lord. 